0: This week, opioid distributors settled with state AGs, Reorg Roundup of Sanchez Litigation, CGL debtors blast lender attempts to sell assets, and settlement on the rocks in Alex and Annie. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the week in review. For this week's deep dive, we'll be taking a trip across the pond to the UK with a replay of Reorg's May webinar, where Reorg's UK team hosts a panel discussion on the new Part 26A restructuring plan, how it differs from the standard scheme of arrangement, how it's been used in practice, and how its use could develop in the future. It's Friday, July 23rd.
1: In ongoing opioid litigation, on Wednesday afternoon, pharmaceutical distributors McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen, and former opioid manufacturer Johnson & Johnson announced a $26 billion global settlement of thousands of governmental opioid claims. According to Tennessee Attorney General Herbert Slatery III, the negotiations were led by attorneys general from North Carolina, Tennessee, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Massachusetts, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Under the proposed global agreement, the distributors would pay up to $21 billion over 18 years, with Amerisource Bergen contributing $6.4 billion, Cardinal Health $6.4 billion, and McKesson $7.9 billion. According to New York Attorney General Letitia James, Johnson & Johnson would pay up to $5 billion over nine years, $3.7 billion of which would be paid in the first three years. The distributors' press release makes clear that the settlement would only resolve the claims of U.S. state attorneys general and political subdivisions in participating states. Non-governmental opioid claimants, certain West Virginia governments, and Native American tribes are explicitly carved out. Separately, Endo International on Thursday announced an agreement in principle to settle the claims of 28 Tennessee plaintiffs for $35 million on the eve of a damages jury trial. The Tennessee court entered a default judgment of liability against Endo in April, and the company faced more than $2.4 billion in potential damages in the trial. According to Endo's press release, the settlement remains subject to final approval by certain governmental plaintiffs and the execution of definitive documentation. The damages trial has been postponed to August 2nd to allow the parties to complete the settlement. A group of Endo term lenders and secured bondholders, represented by Gibson Dunn, retained Evercore as their financial advisor on Wednesday. On Thursday, an ad hoc group of unsecured noteholders, represented by Paul Weiss, retained Perella Weinberg as financial advisor. This week, Riorg reviewed the current status of lien litigation in Sanchez Energy, which emerged from Chapter 11 in 2020, detailing what the court's rulings to date have done to inform the relative rights of DIP and secured notes claims versus unsecured claims, and previewing the issues that remain. When oil and gas prices fell in March 2020, Sanchez Energy was in the middle of a contentious bankruptcy, with unsecured creditors challenging the validity of secured note holders' pre liens on 80% of purported collateral and alleged improper related party dealings by the Sanchez family. The case parties went to mediation in late March and emerged with a novel plan construct. To staunch the cash burn from the lien litigation and thereby avoid the risk of liquidation, the debtors quickly confirmed a plan that distributed 20% of reorganized equity to DIP lenders on the effective date, but reserved the parties' rights to dispute the allocation of the remaining 80% of reorganized equity among DIP, secured, and unsecured claims in the post-effective date period. The debtor's plan was confirmed on April 30th of last year and went effective on June 30th. The lien-related litigation process established in the plan to determine the ultimate equity splits is still ongoing. In the meantime, oil and gas prices have notably increased. As a result, the potential dollar value at stake in the allocation of the 80% holdback of reorganized equity has likely also increased. If you are interested in accessing REORG's in-depth coverage of this story, please reach out to a REORG sales representative.
0: On Tuesday night, the Cedrial debtors objected to a motion for standing to pursue a separate marketing process for the NADL debtor's assets brought by a number of funds associated with strategic value partners and Emerald Capital, known as the SVP parties. The Cedrial debtors argue that the motion seeks control over a material portion of the debtor's assets without satisfying the standards for the appointment of a trustee or termination of exclusivity. According to the debtors, no precedent exists for granting a credit or derivative standing to sell a portion of a debtor's assets. The SVP parties have recently critique the debtors for pursuing what they call a single silo restructuring approach and have advocated for a dual track process where the NADL debtors could pursue a separate plan or sale process. The debtors accuse the SVP parties, which they characterize as a minority creditor, holding just 13% of the NADL debt, of attempting to undermine the debtors' reorganization efforts, including consummation of an as-yet-unfiled plan framework. As summarized by the debtors, the current plan framework contemplates $300 million of new money financing and $750 million of takeback debt in a single silo facility and conversion of the balance of the secured debt into substantially all the equity in the reorganized debtors. The debtors say this planned framework was developed through daily negotiations with the Coordinating Committee of Secured Lenders and Agents, or COCOM, and the ad-hoc group that holds over 70% of the NADL debt, and the framework is supported by the independent NADL directors. The independent directors also filed a response to standing motion, rejecting the SPV party's gross mixed characterizations of the independent directors' conduct and affirming their commitment to satisfying their fiduciary duties. The debtors argue that forcing a standalone sale of the NADL assets now would improperly put SVP's own interests in front of the debtor's business judgment. The debtors stressed that in the exercise of their business judgment, they have concluded that conducting a sale process without having a restructuring transaction agreed to as a floor communicates a breakup to customers and employees that could be value destructive. On the middle market front, a major settlement in the Alex and Annie bankruptcy cases is on pause after a last-minute disagreement of the debtor's archives of their past merchandise alex and annie is a customizable jewelry retailer based out of east greenwich rhode island who fell for chapter 11 in june after explosive growth in the early 2000s gave way to operational and infrastructure growing pain the company completed an adequate restructuring in 2019 to address falling revenue and defaults under its pre revolver and subsequently london-based private equity firm lion which became the company's majority shareholder in connection with the 2019 restructuring acquired all the debtors outstanding first and third obligations. Line also holds a majority of the second lien facility, along with a smaller portion held by company founder Carolyn Rafalian. The proposed agreement would have resolved litigation claims against Rafalian while also providing for the sale of Rafalian's debt holding to the Bathing Club LLC. The settlement is incorporated into the restructuring support agreement entered into with majority owner and lender line capital, Rafalian, and the Bathing Club, and is incorporated into the debtor's dual-track plan for either a sale of substantially all the restructured equity or assets or a standalone reorganization. At a hearing on Wednesday, debtors' counsel explained to the court that debtors believed the settlement agreement was conditioned on a swap of certain property in the possession of the debtors for company archives currently in possession, according to the debtors, of Rafalian and related entities. Rafalian has denied being in possession of the archives. Debtors' counsel said that the debtors believe the archives are a state property, but even so, Rafalian has related consent rights that could affect the debtor's ability to enter into certain transactions following emergence if the archives are not returned. The property includes the company's archives, which the debtors say are the backbone of the company and inspiration for future work. The archives, according to Debtors' Council, include a directory of every SKU ever created by the company and have significant value. Top Red Stories this week included First day mid-year review Real estate hotel is the focus of first half of 2021 Chapter 11's as nearly all other sectors recover from 2020's pandemic bankruptcy boom Potential talent energy unrestricted subsidiary transfers to pursue crypto mining expansion raise prospect of fraudulent conveyance claims. Potential Lime Tree Bay terminal liability for refinery environmental matters and wind obligation adds complexity to bankruptcy scenarios. Second Circuit says private loans can be discharged joining Fifth and Tenth Circuits, Navient loans at issue. Now here's Jim from Houston with The Week Ahead. Good morning all and welcome to the week ahead and fire up your spreadsheets because it's second quarter reporting time.
2: Monday, July 26th, hearing in Avianca Holdings. Tuesday, July 27th, DS hearing in Puerto Rico. Final dip hearing in Stoneway Capital and earnings from Cheesecake Factory, Navient, Neighbors and First Quantum. Wednesday, July 28th, earnings from Antero Resources and Antero Midstream, along with Altice. Thursday, July 29th, Albertsons, U.S. Steel, Weatherford, and Peabody Energy, among others, report their results. And Friday, July 30th, SM Energy and MoneyGram and a court hearing in LADAM Airlines. And that's it from me. Make sure you check out our weekly forward, released early every Monday morning, and back to New York.
0: And next up, we take a trip across the pond to the UK with a replay of Reorg's May webinar, where Reorg Shank Kareshi hosts a panel discussion featuring Marcia Shekhar Damien of Wilberforce Chambers, Richard Fleming of Alvarez and Marcel, and Mark Fine and Sinead Radia of McDermott Will and Emery, who take an in-depth look at the new Part Twenty Six A restructuring plan to discuss how it departs from the standard scheme of arrangement, has been used in practice, and how its use could develop in the near future.
3: Right. So, uh, hello again, and uh, hello to everyone who's joined us. Welcome to this Re-org webinar. On the Part 26A restructuring plan. My name is Sean Kureshi, and I'm a legal analyst in Reorg Europe's uh, office, in Europe's Europe office. Today we'll be discussing a series of recent restructuring plans, including Virgin Atlantic Airways, Pizza Express, Deep Ocean, Gate Group, and of course the recent plan and judgment in Virgin Active. We'll be considering how the plans could how plans could be used in the future and compare the process to the English law company Voluntary Arrangement or CBA. I'm very fortunate to be joined today by our panel of experts. Firstly, we have uh, Marcia Shekadamian QC, a barrister from Wilberforce Chambers. Uh, we have Sunay Radia, partner at law firm McDermott Will & Emery. Mark Fine, also partner at law firm McDermott Will & Emery, and also Richard Fleming, who's the European head of restructuring at Alvarez and Marcel. As is usual for webinars of this type, questions will be welcomed from the audience audience, both during and after the webinar. You'll see that you can submit questions to us in the Q&A panel in the Zoom window. So, as we've all seen, debtors have faced increased challenges during the pandemic and now the new restructuring plan, which was introduced last year, appears to arrive at the perfect time. Sune, perhaps you could uh, kick us off with an introduction to the restructuring plan.
4: Yeah, thanks, thanks, Sean. So the, the restructuring plan was actually introduced by the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, which came into force on the 26th of June 2020. And SEGA, which is what we'll call the Act, introduced various temporary and permanent reforms to English insolvency rules. So this was emergency, emergency legislation brought in by the UK government to address the fin- financial effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on companies in the UK. Now, as our, as our audience includes people outside of the UK, I'm going to run through very briefly the temporary measures and then the more permanent measures, which include the restructuring plan brought about by SEGA. Now, the temporary measures include, you know, the introduc- introduction of a provision that any statutory demands, which had been served during the, the pandemic period from March 20 through to June 2021, will be deemed to be, to be voided. these are precursors to winding up proceedings which are usually brought by drink creditors. secondly you've got a suspension on the commencement of winding up proceedings where a company's inability to pay its debts is is as a result of COVID-19 and thirdly you've got a temporary restraint on enforcement measures by forfeiture by commercial landlords against tenants um, for for that period now strictly speaking this was brought in by the coronavirus act in Loxiga but it is one of the one of the provisions which has been brought in to provide companies with relief during the period. So these three measures provide companies with protection from their creditors and allow them to continue to trade in the face of, of liquidity pressures brought on by the pandemic. Now, in addition to this, you've got a further relaxation of liability for directors under wrongful trading provisions. Now, under English law, um, as, as brought in by SEGA, directors cannot face liability for wrongful trading for any worsening in financial position of the company during the pandemic. So the, these are the temporary measures which have, been, which have been extended out to June, 2021, and they could be extended out further. So as far as the permanent measures go, and this will include the and the, these include the restructuring plan, which is what, what we're here to talk about today. But SIGA has brought introduced a few new provisions, which is considered to be debtor-friendly um in what in what was previously a very creditor-friendly English law insolvency framework. Now, of, of these permanent measures, there are two, which again we will we will touch on, um, which have been brought in in addition to the restructuring plan. Now these are there's been the introduction of a standalone moratorium. So this is a moratorium which is available to companies outside of an administration and for companies experiencing financial difficulties. So which will provide them with some protection from creditors so that they can implement tenor turnaround. Now it's worth noting that the, the moratorium is a standalone process and it's not built into or linked into the restructuring plan. So it might be combined with the plan, but it is a it's a separate separate process. Secondly, you've got a prohibition on enforcement of ifso-factor clauses. These are, these are effectively clauses which allow for the termination of supply contracts upon a counterparty's insolvency. Now this is a, this has been introduced in order to provide companies with some certainty from an operational perspective that they can rely on their existing supply chains in order to operate through a through rest, a restructuring process. So those are the those are the sort of the, the reforms which you know we're not we're not really here to talk about those, but it's worth it's worth flagging those at the outset as they are considered you know fairly fairly important reforms which have been brought in by by Sega. So we are here to talk about the introduction of the restructuring plan, which is brought in under part 26A of the company act by Sega. So the restructuring plan is broadly based on the existing scheme of arranging mechanics, which have been used very successfully by companies, both English and non-English companies over the years, to restructure their indebtedness. But the restructuring plan includes some additional tools which were not which are not available under the scheme and which companies may quite usefully use to seek to bind dissenting creditor classes to their plan. As far as eligibility, okay, the restructuring plan is available to companies facing financial difficulties in circumstances where the proposed restructuring would mitigate those difficulties. Now is gonna, gonna expand on this point, but it is one of the important differences between the scheme and, and the new restructuring plan. Juan, <laughs> <Thank>, to <laughs>
5: Thank you, Sune. Have I cut across you? <laughs>
4: No, no. go ahead and then I'll
5: then I'll then I'll pick up again. Yes, um, I just want to pick up on, in due course, the differences between the new restructuring plan and the uh, part 26 schemes of arrangement that we're familiar with. But let's just first look at some of the similarities. And there are some obvious and striking similarities, but mainly, mainly similarities of form and not necessarily substance. Well, in both cases, part 26 schemes and restructuring plans, um, there has to be a plan, there has to be a compromise uh, or or some kind of an arrangement. In both cases, you have a convening hearing at which um, composition of classes uh, is up for consideration by the court. In both cases, you need one or more class meetings. And as far as the case law on the composition of classes is concerned, Virgin Atlantic has confirmed that uh, basically the first port of call will be the cases under uh, part 26 schemes. Uh, And finally, in both cases, you have the sanction hearing. That's really uh, where the similarities for our purposes come to an end. Uh, There are a number of important differences. There's the financial uh, difficulties threshold. Um, There's the fact that uh, stakeholders with, well, they're not stakeholders, those with no genuine economic interest can't participate. Um, The majority is 75% in value. There's no exclusion for voting purposes of connected creditors. And there's no numerosity test. And, of course, there is the cross-class cramdown. Um, I'm just going to take a a whistle-stop tour uh, through what I see as um, the three uh, key uh, differences. First of all, eligibility criteria. That is, as Sonos said, uh, financial difficulties. That's the threshold and that is what differentiates restructuring plans under 26A from schemes under 26. And that was the distinction that uh, Mr. Justice Zaccaroli zeroed in on in Gate Group uh, when he decided that a a restructuring plan was an insolvency proceeding and therefore outside the Lugano Convention. So uh, we know that schemes are available to all companies uh, regardless of their financial position. uh, And then they're commonly used for for, for takeovers uh, and the like. Um, By contrast, uh, and I'm going to read from the statute now, uh, the restructuring plan is available to a company which has encountered or is likely to encounter financial difficulties that are affecting or will or may affect uh, its ability to carry on business as a going concern. Um, Now, financial difficulties is, is a loose concept. Uh, And I think it's deliberately loose wording, so we're not confined by the stranglehold of the definition of insolvency under Section 123 of the Insolvency Act. Um, Unlike the moratorium procedure that uh, Sunay um, just mentioned, uh, it is not the function of the restructuring plan to achieve the survival of the company or, or, or any part of its business as a going concern hence the plan can simply involve an enhanced dividend uh, to stakeholders. So that deals briefly with um, the financial threshold. Uh, Second big difference is uh, the removal of the humorosity test on voting. So uh, to get a scheme through, you'd need a majority in in number of those voting and 75% in value of each class. In a restructuring plan the relevant threshold for approval is 75% in value of the gross value of the debt of creditors in each class and connected creditors unlike cvas for example aren't discounted um just sort of a top tip a practical tip is one thing to think about before the convening stage is whether there are going to be any particular issues as to who it is that does not have uh, a genuine economic interest so that you can actually uh, 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 at the first hearing say well these this class of of, of, of person let's put it that way neutrally will not be included in any of the classes and this is why Um, and then finally of course uh, the cross class cram down Uh, now this is a powerful and flexible and very entirely new tool uh, for UK legislation, um, and it limits the ability uh, of holdout or ransom creditors to block a viable restructuring pro- proposal, which has the overwhelming credit support of other creditor and stakeholder groups. Um, we're not unfamiliar with the concept of cross-class cramdown because we have it in a modified form in, in Chapter 11. Um, Now, uh, dissenting creditors are able to be crammed down only if they would be no worse off than they would be in the relevant alternative. And what the relevant alternative is, is whatever the court uh, considers would be most likely to occur if the restructuring plan was not sanctioned. So typically, we're looking at a comparator in an administration or a liquidation um and this gives the court a wide discretion as to the benchmark with which to assess the uh, no worse off test and that's one area where valuation uh, will and does come under the spotlight um so in a contentious scenario the cross-class cram down provisions are likely generally to see parties offering competing valuations and comparisons between the estimated outcome of the restructuring plan And whatever the relevant alternative is. Uh, And that's something that was considered quite extensively in Virgin Active. Now, the question of the actual practical operation of the cross-class cramdown comes into play at the sanction stage, which, of course, comes after the voting. And at that stage, you get a three-point tick box that the court has to go through. First of all, the court has to be satisfied that at least one class of creditors who would receive a payment or have a genuine economic interest in the company in the event of the relevant alternative voted in favor of the plan. B, uh, the dissenting creditors would not be any worse off under the plan than they would have been in whatever the relevant alternative is, something we've just discussed. And C, uh, the third um, tick box is that the court is prepared to sanction the plan. On the last point, uh, the court's got a very wide discretion and it will not follow simply because the relevant votes have been passed uh, and that boxes A and B have been ticked that the court will necessarily um, uh, rubber stamp and exercise the discretion uh, in, in the, in the uh, favour of, of, of approval. Uh, and the uh, exercise of the discretion was was a subject of quite extensive discussion in virgin active um speaking
6: yeah, i think that's of, a, i think that's a good it's a good point isn't it marcio which yeah. is and and, and worth just, just pausing on which is yeah, you know, obviously the the no worse than tests the, you know the creditors passing it um the class is passing it you know those, those are the statutory conditions that are required and then as you say Discretion is is, is you know, even if you tick those first two boxes, the court still has the discretion not to go ahead and sanction.
5: Yes, that's right. And and, and when and when exercising that discretion, uh, the court doesn't say doesn't impose its own assessment.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, it, it applies. Yeah, it's a
6: reasonable. Yeah
5: the reasonable intelligent it's 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 the uh the uh, restructuring equivalent of the man on the clapham omnibus after the yeah. bus company has gone into administration
3: yeah. okay thanks exactly. marcia we've had our first question come in um so with all these new aspects and, and powers that the part 26a has does this mean that the existing scheme of arrangement is now redundant or will it still be used
5: oh no it, it isn't redundant because why why would you use a restructuring plan if you're solvent it's like i said the scheme of arrangement has has a crucial uh, uh, function that w- w- which we will still need to call it. for example solvent reorganizations yeah. solvent takeovers
3: thanks marcia um richard uh would you like to maybe discuss a little bit more how you've seen the restructuring plans used in practice
2: Yeah, no, thanks, John. Um, Obviously, the what we've had so far is, um, you know, is an interest, a a build, a build of cases that are each testing different pieces of of the legislation. And and the first one that hit the market was Virgin Atlantic. It was a a case that um, that I was involved in. It was a a full balance sheet restructuring involving both financial and operational creditors, but uh, happily didn't ultimately require the use of the cross class cram down as we managed to get all classes across the line. And and actually, unusually, the the majority of the classes had already signed support agreements prior to the restructuring plan plan being launched. So, so what we had with Virgin Atlantic was, to me, it was proof of concept, right? The first one hits, hits, it gets approved. So that mm-hmm. then emboldens, um, if like other, other corporates and their advice, to say, right, this this plan's got some legs we then moved on pretty sharply uh, to, to Peter Express. And and again, the restructuring plan was part of a wider uh, restructuring, including the disposal of this Chinese business and, and also another insolvency process, the CBA, uh, to compromise our landlords on the, the UK business. And I think the the more interesting aspects of this case was that it was the use of a, a co-obligore structure to discharge liabilities at uh, two different financing levels uh, within the group through a deed of contribution. And again, we saw that happen later on uh, with, with the gate group. So again, principle established and, and it's seen it being used again. Um, and, and again, we talk about the cross-class cram down, but this was the first case that talked about the cross-class cram up. Um, albeit it wasn't, um, it wasn't actually needed. So here we had a, a single class of shareholder was included in that plan to using it to, with the view to using it to cram up the SSNs and the SUNs if indeed that was going to be required. And ultimately it wasn't required because they got the requisite number of majorities. But it's a it's an it's an important point um, uh, to 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 think about as we go through these. Um, and re- then we moved on to to deep ocean and this rich richard, richard finally... sorry
6: just to jump jump in there can you maybe just go into the sort of cross class crammer has a question oh, yeah here.
5: Yeah,
6: that was my that was my question. Sorry. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, in, in a way, in, in, in a way,
2: I I can't wait to see one of these play out because it's such an unusual concept in the world of restructuring, right? Where, where someone who's lower down in the food chain can seek to impose something on someone higher up the food chain, and, and effectively that's what we're talking about. We're talking about here that somebody. So, like let's take the Peter Express example. You've got a shareholder who's sort of clearly out of the money, uh, essentially seeking to get the SSNs or the S. UNs to do something to their debt, Hmm. right, Um, and to either either extend the maturities or whatever it's going to be. So, but again, that's the principle here. You, You just need somebody who's sort of in the money and can actually, in some way, shape or form, can propose something like that. So it's going to be interesting to see how the judiciary actually handle that aspect, um, when they when what actually comes through um, and, and needs uh, needs opinion. Um, so then we we then moved on to Deep Ocean. There's another case that we we're involved in, and this was where the whether for the very first time the cross class um, cram down was was used. It had a fairly easy passage through, which we'll talk a little bit about. But the the main purpose of the restructuring plan here was to allow for the solvent wind down of an underforming part of the group, and and in doing so to compromise some parental guarantees. Now, uh, this is a restructuring plan that it sought to compromise both financial and operational creditors. And whilst it was groundbreaking in lots of in lots of ways, um, uh, it didn't have to deal with the, th- the thorny issue of how the restructuring surplus was going to be um, distributed. And uh, you know, so, it was a relatively straightforward um, test case for for cross class cram down. But 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 on that restructuring surplus and valuation point, Mark, do you want to give us some um, a, a bit of an insight into why that's really important.
6: Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank, thanks, Richard. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it, certainly what, what started with DeepOcean came, came to the forefront a little bit more in, in, in Virgin Active. And as Marcia has gone into, uh, you know, the, the no, worse, no worse off test uh, is sort of, you know, really revolves around valuation. And, you know, ultimately in, in, in Virgin Active, uh, as we say, the, the the alternative was a trading administration with a fire sale of the most valuable parts of the business. And you know, the court found that landlords would be no worse off under the plans than they would be in in that scenario. So the test the test was easily easily passed. Um, it did give a few. There were a few sort of key takeaways as well in, in the judgments around the valuation. Um, you know, sort of three th- three things really. Like you know, l- lengthy valuation disputes that would potentially undermine utilizing that restructuring plan. You know, it should be avoided really at all costs. So that's that's not to say it should cut across. The creditors' protection under the no worse than test, but certainly you don't. I, I think the court is trying to go away from some of the scenarios we saw sort of back in the you know the onset of the GFC where you had massive valuations, some spurious valuation models being being put forward uh, that sort of eroded time and, and value for companies. Um, secondly, and interestingly, you know, the court said there doesn't need to be an absolute requirement to conduct a market testing process. I think that's that's quite an important point yeah. as well, and it's also it's worth noting in in, in the case of Virgin Active, you know, given the sector, given the macroeconomic you know political environment that we've been living in for the last twelve to fourteen months, actually going to market wouldn't have necessarily produced a very favourable result for the landlords in any case. And I think sort of finally and so sort of very damningly for, for the landlords, uh, they didn't provide any alternative valuation. And there was ample opportunity for them to do so. And so the court can only assess the restructuring plan on the basis of the evidence before it. And on, on that case, to say again, it was it was a fairly easy one for the court to be able to say uh, that they would be, the, the, the no worse than test was, was satisfied.
2: I mean, with, with the benefit of hindsight, and it's easy to say this, but it looked a, a fairly strange case that was mounted, wasn't it? When everyone could see the valuation issue was going to be an important issue, and yet you have a community like the landlord community that was organized and actually was you would have thought very able to come up with an, of alternative evidence if it had it as to what yes. would happen to some individual leases and yet chose not to I mean it's exactly. very strange and I think the yeah so that came out loud and clear but I think the judge was the judge was pretty clear too as to as to be surprised I think in terms of why that hadn't been provided so. So no, yeah. it's a bit a, 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 a fascinating case. So, and, and just on Virgin Active, whilst we're talking about it, I know we're probably going to consider that a bit more when we talk about the concept of CVAs versus landlords and we should get out there. has been a pretty bad month for landlords, I think in terms of what's been happening. And I say smiling because I've done a lot of work sort of <laughs> the company side dealing with landlords more generally through these processes. But um, I think the uh, the other thing that came out of it to me was just the around disclosure of, of information. Uh, which was important, and I think that's going to be an important, uh, an important area that's going to be tested further, um, where you know the landlords were making a, a big claim in Virgin Act that they weren't getting access to the right level of information, and I think that again the outcome there was that whilst, whilst the the judge recognised the commercial sensitivity. Um, issue relating to information, they do think that there was a strong sense that the level of disclosure has got to be appropriate, um, you know, for for dealing with the circumstances. So I think that's an area that's going to be debated um, as, as, as we go forward. Um, We'll just continue on. We've had a couple of other sort of financial restructuring um, type of of, uh, restructuring plans. Gate Group, which is important from a recognition perspective, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit later, Uh, and one from a new money perspective, um, being being small uh, small telecom. Um, So we've seen a a reasonably interesting flow. Um, We've got a couple of more in the pipe. So we have the uh, convening hearing for NCP. Uh, tomorrow, and that's the first landlord-only RP, so uh, restructuring plan. So I can only imagine that the landlords are pretty nervous um, about the implications for that. So I'm going to be looking at that um, with a a high degree of interest as they're looking to cram down non-consenting landlords with the shareholders actually retaining equity. So again, you've got some things there, you know, the landlord community is just not going to like and it's going to hate. So that's going to be, that's going to be fascinating. Um, And then we have Hurricane Energy coming up this is potentially is going to potentially be another contested plan where um, you've got a, a, some creditors seeking to um equitize a, a chunk of a chunk of the debt in, re- in return for 95 percent of the group's equity so you've, you've got uh, you've got the shareholders already sort of uh, getting their savers out saying they're going to be prepared to to have a go have, have a go at that concept so again very interesting to see uh, to see what's going to play out um i think the so, so what have we learned right so what have we learned is we've had a new process we've seen that new process largely being employed successfully um so what we have is another toolkit um, and, and another tool in the toolkit. Uh, and you know, and, and we need something like this. And I think it's something that could improve through a, a, additional components being added to it. But so far it's um we've been able to use it for good effect. And what you should expect to see is an increase in the in the flow of these and an increase of people testing the boundaries and, and being creative or creatively entrepreneurial uh, through the use of these processes over the course of the next 12 months in, in particular.
5: Yeah,
2: so thanks
3: richard oh sorry marcia but before you, I was,
5: you to, I was going to say that sort of brings into play um how how can uk plc um, uh, make the most of uh, of this procedure um, in, in, you know, in the context of international restructuring especially now that we're we're out of europe um, uh, yeah, and, and simply looking at, 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 if you like, the international element, obviously, when the court's deciding whether or not to sanction um, a scheme, um, it's got to consider, amongst all other factors, first of all, whether the company in question has a sufficient connection uh, to England, and uh, secondly, Uh, the likelihood or otherwise of the scheme being uh, recognised in any other relevant uh, foreign jurisdictions and therefore binding local creditors. So that really brings into play two issues. First of all, the gateway, the jurisdiction um, issue, if you like, uh, is there a sufficient connection? Uh, And secondly, uh, recognition, the likelihood or otherwise of recognition Uh, that goes to um, the question of discretion. I mean, jurisdiction, frankly, it's easy peasy. Um, There's no no divergence in approach um, uh, under the new restructuring plan. Any company that can be wound up under the Companies Act, which includes foreign companies and unregistered companies, can propose a restructuring plan. Uh, But quite apart from that, any company with a sufficient connection can propose a plan. Uh, and we get Pizza Express showing you quite how widely um, uh, that uh, that 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 provision is that that requirement is construed. Uh, in that case, Mrs. Justice Norris said, well, as long as you had one creditor domiciled in the jurisdiction with a debt, uh, that would be enough to engage the jurisdiction. An in Gate Group, of course, there was the artificiality of, of the target company, the applicant company, being specifically incorporated in this jurisdiction in order to take advantage of Part 26A, and for that purpose, of course, to assume the um, the debts of the parent and guarantor companies. Um, recognition is, is, is a bit more of a sticky wicket with uh, well, post-Brexit European regulation on insolvency proceedings doesn't apply. Brussels 1 is no longer relevant. Um, And as far as um, part 26 schemes are concerned, um, the the English courts had always proceeded on the footing that um, those those schemes, proceedings for an old-style scheme, uh, would constitute a civil or commercial matter and would fall within the Brussels regulation, and by extension to that, the Lugano Convention. Now, we've been trying to elbow our way into the Ligano Convention for a while, um, and I imagine that, you know, various uh, doors are being shut in our face. But as far as the restructuring plan is concerned, um, it doesn't terribly much matter um, because uh, Gate Group um, uh, dropped the bombshell, uh, the the, the judgement of Mr Justice Zaccaroli, um uh, a restructuring plan was an insolvency proceeding and therefore did not fall within the Lugano convention so okay that's fine so what do we do about it uh well i'm afraid it, it, it it's back to reliance on the model law Uh, where countries have signed up to it. Um, And we know that virtually all of Europe hasn't signed up to uh, the model law, apart from, I think it's Greece, Poland, Slovenia, and Romania, Um, or um, local local law and recognition and local laws on private international law. Um, So that actually presents an initial challenge at the planning stage, because there's absolutely no point in, in, in embarking upon the process of seeking approval for a restructuring plan, if it turns out it's not going to get recognized somewhere where it needs to get recognized. So, so,
3: so Marcia, if I if I could just stop you there. Yeah. Sunday, Mark, uh, when advising uh, your clients, how how would you approach uh, this issue on, on, on recognition and using a part 26A? Yeah, so one of one of the difficulties, I think you you
4: he- you would need you would need local law advice right I think that's what, uh, that's, what that's what that's what marcy was, was saying that so you would need the certainty so you, you, you don't have the certainty through legislation no. or you know reciprocal recognition of judgments which you had previously especially in with with, with, um, with companies that have big operations in, in Europe so the approach at the moment is effectively you take local law advice and you get legal legal opinions which make it very clear that what you are trying to do, whether it's you know, under your Part 26A or your Part 26, would be recognized and given an effect in the relevant jurisdiction. So that, that would be the way that you would do all that.
5: <clears throat> that. That's right. It's not an unfamiliar process because we see that a lot in Part 26 schemes, mm-hmm. at parking and all of those, where they had days of German expert evidence or on, on uh, recognition. Um, yeah, I mean, so it, it's all it's all in the planning. The one question I asked myself when I was preparing for this talk, and, and I don't know whether anybody, I'm just throwing this out there, uh, whether we could use section 426 uh, of the Insolvency Act to get um, assistance in a, in a relevant territory, like, like the Channel Islands, the Isle of Man, I'm just, just throwing it out there. I haven't found any commentary on it, but then again, I haven't looked very hard. Okay, don't all rush at once. <laughs>
3: That's a question for Mark and Sine, but David's a bit
4: technical. <laughs> no, I think it, you're right there. I think definitely it could be, you, you could, in theory, use it, right? But like like you said, I don't think there has been, um, at least nothing I've come across that where, where people have sort of tried to rely on it. But in theory, there is no reason why you shouldn't be able to ask. For that assistance, no. so yeah, we've yeah. had
3: a we've had a question come in here. that's a question we've heard before. Given that the, the issues you raised, Marcia, about uh, recognition of the restructuring plans, will the UK continue to be a desirable Comey, with the similarly new mechanisms in other jurisdictions? And we're talking about the Dutch scheme here. So perhaps Mark or Sunay, do you, do you think that the UK uh, restructuring regime is going to
6: lose business to the Dutch courts? I think potentially over time that there there is certainly a risk that can happen. I think equally, you know, certainly part 26, part 26A is obviously building momentum here. You know, there, there is a lot of precedent case law on this. And I think a lot of companies take comfort and value in, in that precedent. And so, yeah, certainly for a period of time, I still think, you know,
3: we're going to see it a lot
5: brought to the UK courts. Okay. Yeah, Richard,
2: you're on I'm mute. I'm mute. You're on mute. Pardon me, there we go. That's the expression of, uh, of the COVID era, isn't it? So, <laughs> but um, I mean, the UK restructuring community has. Been a great exporter of its thinking and talent all the way around Europe, you know, and it doesn't go unnoticed. So I think that's one of the reasons why you've you've seen other the countries like Germany and the Netherlands seek to change their processes because you know what they want some of that action in their own courts and uh, in, and and so on. So so I think it's inevitable that we go we're losing some of the market share, if you like, yeah. UK driven UK driven processes, regardless of what's happening with the restructuring plans. So.
3: Thanks, Richard. Mark, I think uh, we're going to hand over to you to take us through some of the recent CVA decisions. Uh, maybe a, a comparison of and the restructuring
6: plan. Um, yeah, no, happy to. And I think, as 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 Richard as Richard said, the last last few weeks haven't been uh, particularly friendly to to the landlord community. Um, I think they, you know, given the, the onset of the pandemic and the fact that you know, they were prevented from demanding rents from their tenants, you know, prevented from evicting their tenants. I think this, you know, it's obviously been a a, a tricky time and the decision in Virgin Active, I think really shows that, you know, the RPs, you know, are a very useful tool in compromising uh, lease liabilities. And I think the decision in New Look as well, which is obviously being appealed, it's worth noting. Uh, But I think that decision shows that there is probably still a place for CVAs and they continue to be um, a, a useful tool as well. I, th- I think on, on, on Virgin Active, obviously, it's, it's the first time that it's you know the, the, the RP has been used uh to cram down lease li- lease liabilities. And we've obviously spoken a little bit about, you know, Master has taken us through the, the various steps that you need to take to uh to affect the cram down. I think maybe just picking up on, on, on one of those, because there were some interesting points that came out of the judgment around. Uh, the court's discretion to, to, to sanction the the plan, um, you know, they said conceptually, the plan can provide for different treatment and substantial value to some, but not all of the creditors who are out of the money. And that's, that was, that was a fact that was established in deep ocean in, in, in any case. Mm. But since, since some opposing classes are going to be out of the money in the relevant alternative, there was very little weight that was given to their numerical opposition to the plans in, in, in those classes and equally no weight was given to the uh, the landlords who were opposing uh, whose objections were that the secured creditors had agreed with the plan companies as to what the share of the post restructuring equity looked like and of course that, that that cannot be right the, the reality is that it has to be the in the money creditors that determine how to divide you know, value and upside in a, in in a post post restructuring world and again the, the landlords virgin active weren't able to provide any cred- credible evidence to show that that they were in the money, so they had sort of you know, very limited sympathy really in, in, in terms of in terms of the argument. And then there's two two other points on, on discretion that, that's worth just just noting. Um, the, the differential treatment between classes of landlord was quite easily explained in its reference to the profitability, the commercial importance that the plan companies attribute to the to the to the relevant clubs. Um, and then equally, there was um, a, the, the point was raised as, as to whether it was appropriate or not for um, the group to go down the restructuring plan route when actually a CVA could have been an alternative. And, and, and they found that Zachary found there's nothing inappropriate in choosing the plan over a CVA, despite the fact that, as evidence may suggest, actually the landlords might have been able to block the CVA. If it, if, if it had gone, gone down that route, but I thought there were some, some of the interesting points that, that, that came out of that. On, on, on the CVA's themselves, obviously we've had, we've had New Look, uh, we had Regis as, as well, um, and obviously you know, Regis made the headlines because it was an example of you know, a CVA that was successfully overturned. And yeah, you know, I, I think you know, sort of ignore the practic- how practical that was. Obviously, the CVA had terminated with the, with the company going into administration a couple couple of years ago anyway, but I think, you know, possibly worth just highlighting the couple of areas of of challenge in in both of those cases. They really focused around three things. One was around jurisdiction, around um, unfair prejudice, and around material irregularities. And on the jurisdictions, the landlords argued a couple of points. Um, The CVA was based on separate and fundamentally different arrangements between creditors. And then secondly, that there was interference with their proprietary rights. And the court held, yeah, and this this is a little bit similar to the point that was made in, in Virgin Active is just whilst there's differential treatment, doesn't you know that needs to be justified, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the CVA lacks jurisdiction or is unfairly prejudicial in, in in the first place. And just on the quickly on the proprietary rights, um, they didn't require the landlords to surrender their leases. It was it was just an option mm-hmm. for them to do so. And so, as such, it was found that, yeah, that, that there was uh, no interference with the proprietary rights. On unfair prejudice, again, the, the arguments sort of stem focused on on, on three points. One was that the, the requisite statutory majorities that were obtained for the CBA were through votes of unimpaired creditors. Uh, and the court rejected that and said that CVA is actually part of a wider restructuring. And these were all in con- interconditional, these, the, these plans. Um, and you know, under that wider restructuring, the secure creditors were impaired. Okay, It was debt for equity, so, so there was impairment. So that, 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 that was dismissed. Um, again, the differential treatment between compromised and uncompromised creditors uh, and the lease modifications. And on the lease modifications, they had been offered a termination right. Um, and that was deemed to adequately deal with, with the issue, because ultimately they were given the choice. They could either stay in on the revised terms, or they could take, take the property back. Now, on, on, on Regis, as I said, we did see revocation of the CBA, uh, but uh, personally I'd be interested to know what, what other people on the panel think. Uh, I, I don't know if I put too much credence to, to that decision. It was a very specific point around critical creditors, um you know the company shareholder was permitted to vote in relation to its intercompany debt which was staying unimpaired and it was for that reason and there's a related point around nominees um but it's for that reason that uh the cva was revoked it's worth noting that on every other you know every other challenge uh the the landlord's claims was dismissed i don't know if anyone else feels feels differently about that
2: uh well i mean look i, I agree with you i mean for me i have done a lot of CVAs you know over the years and and to me the thing that made me feel very uneasy was the fact that the shareholder loan was voting and it wasn't being compromised I mean it, it just and there's no no surprise at all I think that that's where the, where the where the judge came out right and and actually for me one of the things I I think and it has been a bad a bad few weeks for landlords but if I look at CBA's, you've had Really, What was really threatening CBAs in 2019, despite having a fairly clear run until then, was actually just the threat of um, certain matters being objected to and then going through a court process. Because sometimes it was the very fact that there might be an objection that had to be heard in court that actually would stymie whether or not this business could could survive in, in in that interim period. But what we're now starting to see, what we've seen through a few cases is, is some things actually being tested so we're getting better case law and in the main they've come down on the side of what's been happening so actually that that's that to me is a real positive um, for the cva what's real really positive for the rp though, in terms of compromising leases is we've had a fight first off we've had a fight first off and and actually the construct around that in terms of how the landlords were put into different categories was absolutely following the thinking of what we've been doing in cva so a lot of symmetry so, straight away now, I've had that reinforcement from judiciary around some of those principles, but actually, some of those principles are much stronger even though, than where the CVA was. You know, when I look at that concept of being able to vote connected creditors, that's phenomenally powerful um, in, the, in, in the context of, of compromising uh, pieces. So, so for me, I, I, I think it's, um, you know, in, 2000, in 2019, I was thinking the CVA was going to die because of the concerted challenges that were coming out uh, coordinated challenges coming out across the landlord industry in 2020 we had a comeback because of covid we had no choice and everyone accepted kind of where we were together with the government measures that stopped you know chasing rent arrears and forfeiture and, and those sorts of things but now as we move forward what we've got is two different but overlapping processes that have validity that you can look to when, you, when you when part of the issue you have to look at um is uh is is compromising is, is compromising um landlords and and i think you know that it, it'll be careful thinking each time but you know the cva's tended to be just focused on an operational restructuring right dealing with some components but really it's compromising landlords you've needed a scheme to do the debt or, or other things restructuring plan enables you to do both a restructuring plan is typically a lot more expensive than it is to do it than it is to do a cva so are you going to use a CVA on £100 million turnover business with 70 sites? Unlikely, you know, because of the cost. Scenario. There'll be different things to contemplate with. For me, I think it's a it, it's a really interesting um, a really interesting time.
5: I have a question um, for Mark and Richard. Given the availability of cross class cram down, what is the point of a um, landlord and tenant um, centred CVA, uh, when cross class cramdown is going to, on the face of it, eliminate unfair prejudice challenges.
2: Really good question. I think it'll come, part of it will come down to cost. I, I think is is the point. But I I, I agree. I think that's uh, it's um, it's it's moving up the charts, and yeah. um, let's see what NCP brings. Because yeah. let's have let's have that um, heard tomorrow. Let's have that fight that'll happen on the back of that. Let's see what that brings.
3: Okay, thanks, uh, thanks, Richard. So, uh, Sunny, Mark, what's what's your views on the CVA and Part Twenty Six A use? Can you what sort of examples would you have where you know a CVA would definitely be the the to choose over a Part Twenty Six A? Is it small small type companies?
6: Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's right. It's, to, it's Sean. It's it's to, it's to Richard's point as to you know there is you know especially yeah you know, there is a cost involved especially quite a large upfront cost involved given given the core process and so i think it is ultimately going to come down to size it's also going to come down to a case of efficiency as well like you know do you, is it something is it purely a lease liability issue that you're trying to solve for or is there a wide you know something wider because obviously being able to compromise you know, the secured and the unsecured together is obviously a massive, massive benefit of the, the RP. So I think there's a couple of things, really efficiency and cost is going you know, boil, to boil down to. So now, I don't know if you have anything else. Yeah,
4: absolutely agreed. I think, I think cost is, is a big factor, as Richard had said, and I think it's, you know, what, what are you trying to do, right? What is, what is the company actually trying to compromise? If you are just dealing with leases, um, you know, there's a well-trodden path to go down a CBA, um, you know, a lot, a lot cheaper, a bit more certainty, well, a lot more certainty. Um, and um, but if you are doing a, a broader restructuring, where you're trying to deal with other elements of your of your balance sheet, as we, you know, you skip as well as as well as your leases, and you're doing sort of a, a wholesome reset of a company, then uh, and, and the company is substantial in 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 value, then uh, the restructuring plan would be the way to go. I think it's just yeah. you know case by case.
2: Yeah. And I think too, I mean, CVAs have typically been used, I mean, the businesses have typically been in the AE ward from an operational perspective and a business model perspective. And what the restructuring plan is going to enable businesses to do is to go further back up the curve, where actually maybe the issue is really around the debt burden um, and combined with that operational restructuring need. So there's still life in that operating model and the proposition that that entity has or business has as it faces its customer base. But it doesn't necessarily have to be from an operational perspective, a death door perspective. So I think you can see the restructuring plan being used further back up the demise curve, as I call it, which is something also the landlords will hate. The, the landlords will hate being made to take pain um, when the business is still it, it has a better chance, if you like, of, of of recovery. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but that's typically where where, where they tend to come out. Okay. Thanks, guys.
3: Um should we move on to the uh, Q and A part of the webinar? So we've got uh, a question here. So uh, so far, Part Twenty Six A plans have been used for larger businesses. Does the panel think that they will become sufficiently streamlined in terms of their costs of the required application to make them actually a useful bit of kit in the SME sector? I don't.
6: Anyone say? No, <anyone's> <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, probably probably not. Say so the upfront cost is no. just is, is 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 too high. Mm-hmm. That I just don't see it being. Yeah, I don't see how you streamline it in in a way that that makes it useful for an SME business.
2: Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. Okay.
3: Um, do you, uh, and to the panel again. Uh, will the introduction of the Part Twenty Six A spell the end of the UK administration regime, as instead companies take the lead to file for an RP and use the moratorium, which is in the, the figure?
5: No. I mean, the, for the start, the moratorium is, is aimed at, has to be aimed at survival. That's got to be the objective. And it's got to be the objective as signed off by the um, monitor. And it's too short um i think the moratorium is is much better served uh, much better suited to smaller companies i think i think the availability of the moratorium in conjunction with the restructuring process is a bit of a red herring there are other mechanisms in in place under the cpr if you need to get a stay of proceedings you can apply for a stay of proceedings while you're putting together your restructuring plan um and i think administration has as obviously it's unique features um, that I think are not suited to uh, a restructuring plan um, for example you know ongoing concerns sales of parts of the business plus yeah. you have you know there are there are insolvency and restructuring um, processes that I think need an office holder in place and you don't have that with the restructuring plan. I think there is more sophistication with the administration process.
2: I totally agree with you. I think you've actually hit the nail on the head there, right? So there are plenty of cases that, you know, I obviously am an administrator. That's probably what most of my work will be through through all the various different insolvency guises that we have. And you know, many of those cases, there's no way known you'd apply retrospectively a restructuring plan for it. And and also too, you know, so at the same time, we've seen a number of restructuring plans now. How many moratoriums and monitor roles? Have we see you know what it, it to me doesn't look like a role i'm gonna put my hand up for any time soon right i can't see what the benefit to if my risk perspective and everything else is in that role so so maybe if we get round to change of legislation mark two you know you, there's a chance to do something more to the rp to give a, a, a you know a broader use in that sense but no i don't um i don't see it so. okay
3: Marty, i have a question for you um when you discussed the difference between the uh, scheme of arrangement part26a, you highlighted that the requirement for financial difficulty on behalf of the debtor was a requirement. Has the court or the legislation given us any guidance as to what financial difficulty is?
5: No, I don't think there's any any guidance in in the legislation. I mean financial difficulties is is, is I think, a deliberately and purposefully um, fluid term. Um, and we've got we've got the definition of insolvency under the Insolvency Act, which is basically balance sheet insolvency or going concern insolvency, inability to pay their debts as and when they fall due. Um, and uh, that that's a very that's a, that's a much more rigid test. And the difference in language, I think, here is deliberate. So it's it's circumstantial. I don't that, there is there is nothing. Um, prescriptive about the legislation and it seems to me that you know if you've got incipient financial difficulties or you're going to be insolvent you think you're going to be going concern insolvent in six months time when you know you're you're a prime candidate
3: okay uh mark i've got a question for you so how important are valuations going to be
6: in part 26 pay plans um very important, <laughs> very important. I think yeah, as we said before, that, that you know valuation has always you know, b- been been key, whatever the, the restructuring tool that you're using. I think especially if you're going to affect cross-class ground cr- down, uh then the ability to show that you're not gonna, you know, that the, the class that's being ground down is gonna be no worse in the alternative scenario is is critical. And as as we've said before, it, you know, that could Whilst, whilst the court would like that to be a smooth process, like to the extent you know, landlords or trade creditors or, or whoever uh, is the, that's in that dissenting group, you know, to the extent they organise themselves correctly and they provide meaningful valuations, then I can certainly see scenarios in the future where that question becomes a lot harder to answer uh, for, for the court than it, than it has you're done. You're suggesting with
3: competing valuations. So, yes, uh, if yeah. your land, if your land yeah, exactly, holds, uh... because
6: because in in in, in you know in in the cases so far, but you know, both Deep Ocean and in Virgin uh, Active, the you know, Virgin Active, it was a, a an administration, as I say, with a the sale of the material parts of the business that were valuable. Um, Deep Ocean was 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 an insolvency, and you know, I think in, in Deep Ocean the uh, the, the credit the, the the group of creditors were offered something like four percent know, above. Mm what they what they would have received in that insolvency. So that was obviously enough to, to satisfy the no-worse land test.
3: Richard, in your experience, could could you foresee a, a scenario where a group of landlords who are having their rights compromised come together and put, pull a different valuation and a different outcome and present that to the court? Is is
2: that likely? Um, well, I, I, well, it's definitely possible, but I'd argue that was their opportunity in Virgin Active and they kind of got it wrong. So I think if they're going to do it again, they would have learned from that. So, because um, you, you have to do that. So there's, because actually, I think in every restructuring plan, plenty of attention is going to be placed on the valuation exercise in terms of the proposal, right? It's kind of what we do. It's what you do in the CBA and it's what you do in a restructuring plan. So so that's, that's well thought through. So um, if, they, if they're going to do that, they have to do it. Uh, so I suspect, um, you know, It'll be interesting uh, again, but again, we, we should. If they're going to do that, we'll see it on NCP, I suspect. Yeah,
3: yeah, tomorrow, exactly.
2: Uh, We've
3: got be another case. One more question, and this is honed down on the no worse off test. So, when, we, when we're looking at the no worse off test, do we see that as a pure measure of just direct economic outcome, i.e., getting less uh, money or less of a dividend, or is it? In the relative alternate might be the, the trigger of a rights that are valuable. So, how broad is the no worse off test?
2: I mean, as a commercial guy, not a lawyer. I mean, I think it's a hard one to categorize I mean, I'll give you an example that might illustrate that. So, so again, I'll just go back to landlords. But one of the things the landlords will say, you know, I'm a let's call it, I'm a category E. I'm right down the bottom of the pile, landlord. You don't want my site, and it doesn't look very nice. And you're telling me I might get two or three pence in the pound, but actually, I'm telling you that. Uh, I've got an alternative, uh, an, an alternative over here, an alternative tenant that might produce me a better, a better outcome than what you're showing me, right? But, it's, um, isn't it, but that's, that's unlikely to be across a class. that's likely to be a one landlord type scenario. So that's just one and, piece of and, landlord. Specific.
5: And also, just picking up on that that example, that's it's a question of how whether you're valuing a right or an interest. Yeah. And. The the comparison exercise and the compromise exercise is all about rights, not interests. So you might have a commercial interest that has a particular value, but if you're going to lose that interest, I don't think that's relevant for the purposes of, of the are you worse off test.
3: Okay, thanks, uh, Marcia. I think that is about all we've got time for. So uh, thank you for all of those. Who joined us on this REORG webinar? And of course, thank you to the excellent panelists for the lively discussion. Um, if any of our audience members do have any further questions, do feel free to reach out to your REORG point of contact. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Thank you.
4: Thank you.
6: Thanks.
0: Thank you again for listening to this REORG weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the REORG.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and see you next Sunday.